Well, there's a program uh, on TV called Who Do You Think You Are? And what it does is it delves back into the past, the, his the history of someone's life, normally a celebrity, and uncovers all kinds of interesting uh, sections of that history. And sometimes, every so often, they come across a little skeleton in the family closet. And they explore a little bit about how that story may have impacted the journey of that family's life, even right up to the present day. And it's amazing how surprised that some of the people who are on that program are about the things that in their family history that they knew nothing of, that took them by surprise. And as they try to work out what, what that means for them in terms of, of their belonging in this family that they are part of, who do you think you are? And it's interesting as we come to the story of the birth of Christ into a family about the storyline of that family into which Jesus, the Son of God, is born, the, the Joseph and Mary family. It's interesting to note who, Je who God chooses for the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, which by all accounts, I don't know, that's quite a big deal. The birth of the Son of God on earth is, is a pretty big deal in the whole scope of history. Emmanuel, God with us. So who does he choose for this historic moment and event? Well, he chooses Mary and Joseph, an unmarried couple from so, small town Nazareth. And if you know anything about Nazareth, then Nazareth was one of these small-town places that n nothing really important ever happened in. Uh, a little later on in uh, the Gospels, when Jesus is beginning his ministry, we come across a, a little conversation taking place between two disciples, Nathaniel and Philip. And Nathaniel says to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's kind of like, it was almost like the strap line for Nazareth. It wasn't going to win the greatest place in the tourism awards. It was poor. It had nothing much happening in it. But into this place where the people said, can anything good come from there? That's where God goes to find the family in which he will cause this historic moment to unfold from. Jesus if we were to go in his family tree, who do you think you are, Jesus, is brought to a small nothing town, to an unmarried couple, in the place that nobody goes to. And then if you dig further back, Matthew chapter 1 helps us do this. Matthew chapter 1 begins to unpack Jesus' history line, his family tree. And there are some surprising inclusions in the family tree that I suppose Matthew could have done something completely different in his first chapter of his gospel, but instead he gives a family history that is surprising. There are some skeletons in the closet. Well, they're not really skeletons because if you've read the Old Testament, you will have discovered that these are truths about Jesus' family line. So when you go to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew uncomfortably reminds us about Jesus' family tree. We have Jacob the deceiver. 
Then we have the unusual inclusion of women. That may not be a surprise to us now, but in first century Judaism, to include women in a family tree would be ridiculous because women had no place, no rights, no status. But Matthew includes the women in the family line. And there are some interesting stories of the women in that family line. For various reasons, it's not just a double it's not just a surprise that they're in, but a double surprise. They are outsiders. Outsiders, those on the edges who were brought in by God, welcomed. There's Tamar, who's noted in that Matthew 1 lineage of Jesus. And and the deceptive debacle that happened between Judah and Tamar. Judah, her father-in-law, Tamar's father-in-law. And this pretense of being a prostitute to lure her father-in-law in, which she does and becomes pregnant. And then there's Rahab, the prostitute. Then there's Ruth, the Moabite. The Moabites were excluded and, 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 and hated and, and isolated by the Jewish religion and the leaders. But they're all brought into this lineage. These kind of religious skeletons in the closet. Why? Because throughout the course of the history of God's people, including the line of Jesus, God was always at work welcoming and bringing in the outsider and the ones that you would least expect. Even Uriah's wife. Remember Uriah and the story of David? And David who sees Uriah's wife when he's out in his balcony and he wants Uriah's wife and for himself and so he commits adultery with her. Then he sets up a whole deception to make sure Uriah is sent to the front line of the war so that he's killed because David got Uriah's wife pregnant. You're thinking, Matthew, why would you bring all of this into the lineage of Jesus? Why remind us all of these skeletons in the closet? Why? Because it reminds us of the kind of God God is. The God who welcomes in the ones that others would rather keep out. What a surprising bunch to welcome and parade into the family line and this unfolding story of Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus born into this rabble. Why? Because that's the ongoing story of grace that we are part of. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. It's not just the ones who've got it all together or, or, or the, the ones who are in privileged positions. Thanks be to God that he welcomed those who often were left as the outsiders. This is the history of God's grace, God's embrace, God's welcome. And then, if you were God, who would be your first choice of PR messengers for this world-changing news? What kind of people would God choose? Who else would God welcome into his coming-to-earth story? Well, let's read our scripture for this morning. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 8. 
And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And we'll pause. We are going to go through the whole of this section of the shepherds. But to whom does God go? To be messengers? Right? He, he goes to random shepherds in a field outside of Bethlehem. The shepherd would have been part of a grouping, a social grouping of people called the Amha Aretz. It means people of the soil, of the earth. Those who were regarded as, as poor and those who were regarded uh, as un uneducated, unable really to contribute except in very small and lowly ways. And these uneducated shepherds also were often unwelcome in the religious gatherings. They spent their time out in the fields with animals and regarded as unclean. So they were uneducated, unclean, unwelcome, unnoticed, except to God. And so God chooses as his first PR messengers after the angels <laughs> this bunch of shepherds out in a field in the outlying areas of Bethlehem. Even that language, out in the field, that geographic separation, that social separation, religious and spiritual distancing, they were out there. Well, all the people who, who were worthy of it were in at the temple. And God's presence and glory visits the out-in-the-field people for the declaring of this news of the coming of Christ. These type of events surely should have happened in the religious places with the religious people in the temples, but no, God chooses the messengers out in the fields. Heaven meets earth in the fields with some shepherds. And while the shepherds are honored with this news, the rulers and the people of power are given nothing of this divine intervention. If you read on in the story, you'll, be, you'll find that they begin to panic. What's happening? Why, why do we not know about all of this? This new world coming in the birth of Christ is radically different in shape to the world of human power and rule. And God's welcome overturns our fascination with status and categorization and pigeonholing. It turns it all upside down because God's welcome came to his shepherds in a field just outside of Bethlehem. That's who God welcomed into the story to be messengers of this incredible news. And what's amazing is that not only are the shepherd, shepherds announcers of this good news, we'll come to that in a minute, they go and see uh, 
the baby lying in a manger as they had been told, and then they return telling everyone what has happened, they are also the confirmers of this news about King Jesus. Their arrival at the stable, they're told, this is a sign. You will find this baby wrapped in, in, in a manger. And so when they go, it is a confirmation because that's exactly what they find. It's a confirmation to them. It's a confirmation to Mary and Joseph that everything they have been told is true. Wow, what a privilege. Not just announcers, but confirmers of the story. And God chooses the shepherds. He welcomes them in to confirm everything that he has said and then confirmed for every generation thereafter. God's welcome. God's intentional, heaven-sent, sky-filling welcome to shepherds in a field. The nativity, the coming of Christ, is a story of God's ongoing gracious welcome. His longing for all to return to him in Christ. I want to say this morning, whoever we are, wherever we're from, whatever our story, whatever distance we might feel between us and God, in Jesus, we are welcomed back home back to God. I want us to pause on that thought. Whoever we are, wherever we're from, whatever our history, this story of Christmas is about a welcome back to God in Christ Jesus. So I want us just to pause and pray. And I invite you just to take a private moment with God. And I want you to picture, where are you in relation to Jesus? Picture yourself and picture him. Where are you in relation to him? Are you near? Are you far? Are you further away than you thought you were or would like to be? And as you picture that, and whatever picture you have of Jesus in your mind, just now watch for his welcome. Watch for his welcome. For the coming of Christ is a call to the world and to you, a call of welcome. Come to me. Return to me. Watch for those outstretched arms of Christ Watch as he moves towards you. The movement is always from heaven to earth. 
will you walk towards him in this divine welcome? Lord, I thank you so much for the gracious story of grace and love throughout the whole of Scripture and throughout all of human history. And thank you that in you, Lord Jesus Christ, there is a way to the Father. And in this moment just now, as we survey our closeness or lack of closeness to you, we step back toward you. Thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you reach down and into this broken world and our broken world and our broken lives. Father, forgive us for our wandering and our forgetfulness and times are turning of our back in you. In this moment, we return to you. And maybe you just need to say that to God this morning. I'm coming back to you, Lord Jesus. I'm coming back. Lord, I pray that we would sense that embrace and welcome of your love. In Jesus' name. Now, as we think about this welcome of God, and as we think about this story of the nativity, one of the things that we are asking about this whole story is, not just what does it say about God and the nature of God and the mission of God, but how does it form and shape the life of the church? If God is a God of gracious welcome, then what does that mean for us as the people of God? We too must be a people of gracious welcome to others. That's how the story of the nativity needs to shape the church. How do we express the welcome of God to others around us? Now, you may or may not remember this, but uh, I think about it often. But some of our church values represent this divine welcome. We talk about ourselves as people of radical hospitality and authentic spirituality. We want to be authentic in how we live, that we understand that uh, if we're being authentic, we, we, we aren't claiming some superiority or self-righteousness. We have our own struggles as well, but my goodness, in Christ, we are facing them. God is helping us. That authenticity that, that connects with people who also are going through life and trying to work out what it means. But then that radical hospitality, open hands, open heart to all people and welcoming them so that they too might find Christ and his ways. And so if we are to express the nature and the life of God in our lives as the church of Jesus Christ, what does that look like? It's a simple point. How welcoming are we? How welcoming are we when we gather like this? How welcoming are we in our day-to-day -day living with others? How are we when we're out in the fields doing whatever we do, wherever we are? 
Are we living in a hospitable, grace-filled welcome? And then as a congregation to one another, to the stranger, to the visitor. Now you might think this is a small detail. I think it's critical. As a congregation gathered, what does it mean for us to be welcoming when a stranger, when someone who we don't know or a visitor comes in? How welcome are we? Do you watch for those who are around you so that you can welcome them? How welcoming are we? Do I think one of the greatest gifts that the church gathered can give is that when someone comes in, and, and actually it, it can take a lot of courage for somebody to step over the threshold of a church, is to have a feeling that actually someone welcomed them. That's not someone else's responsibility. That's your responsibility. That's my responsibility. So somehow together we create this radical hospitality of welcome. And in doing so, we express the very love and nature of God. The intentionality of God's welcome. I mean, it's so in all the way through Scripture and all through this nativity story. It was an act of the will out of a heart of love. So I don't doubt that we have the love of God in our hearts. So it's an act of the will to express this welcome. And there will be people who will come here over these next few weeks just because it's Christmas and just because maybe you've invited them. Let's be the hospitable, welcoming people of God. Let's take that up as our responsibility. Not just for the next few weeks. Let's make this the church that's known for its welcome. We're known for our love-filled hospitality and welcome. Well, that's the first part of the story. The God who welcomes even the shepherds into this wonderful story of declaring the coming of Christ. But let's read from the next few verses. From verse 13 onwards. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with an angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Just pause there. We've had welcome. Now we have the testimony of obedience. In, in verse 11 of this chapter, Luke affirms that Jesus is coming as Savior, Messiah, but also Lord. And while the other lords, the rulers, the powers, the kings, uh, the emperors, the governors are left in the dark, this new king, this Lord, who comes in humility, is coming as light. So all, all the other human rulers and powers and authority are left in the dark, but this Jesus who comes in humility in a manger, he comes as light. And well, these human rulers represent bad news for the people, the birth of Christ rings with good news for the people, all the people, not just the privileged, but all the people. And that, 
use of the word Lord in first century Roman Empire was also often applied to the emperor. Caesar is Lord. And so the Roman emperors assumed a godlike status that somehow they were the saviors, they were the messiahs, they would be the ones who would bring the Roman rule and empire by force and control over the whole land. But in truth, what it actually caused was pain and sorrow for the people. But the Lord that is coming in Christ is of a different sort. His is a new kingdom of humility and love and peace and justice. Instead of having the lordship of the human rulers, we have the lordship of the humble love of Christ. And so the response of the shepherds is one of obedience to this Lord who comes as a babe in a manger. They hear the message and they obey. The sign given to the shepherds about this Lord was one of humility. This coming of God as a baby entering the world was a Lord and a Savior who truly would bring peace and peace to all. And so they give obedience to this Lord. And so we read in verse 16, So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Now, if you were to quickly run through the book of Luke, here's what you'd find. You would find a whole load of religious people not doing what the Lord says, and a whole load of unexpected outsiders doing exactly what the Lord was saying. And again, the question that it bears and brings to us is, which are we? Which are we? Are we like the book of Luke, where those who were part of the religious seem unable to understand or put into practice obedience to God? Or are we like the outsiders who seem to get it like that? Our life in Christ is debilitated and disingenuous when we're only concerned about Jesus as Savior. I'm saved. I'm safe. I'm in. But it must be accompanied with an understanding that Jesus is Lord and therefore to be obeyed, to be submitted to His ways, not ours. To follow Him is to obey him, even if it costs. He is Savior and Messiah, but He is Lord. And in the shepherds' faithful obedience, they do what the Lord had spoken to them. They go as they were asked, and as they do so, they encounter this Savior and Lord. They're welcomed into this new 
heaven and earth family. And as a result of that, they returned praising God in joy and with joy, telling everyone that had happened. They could have stayed in their fields, but they heard the word and they obeyed it. Now, there's all kinds of ways in which the Lord speaks to us, the Lord guides us, the Lord gives us commands and instructions. But, but the way most often that we find it is in the Scriptures. And somehow, people of God, we've got to get back into this Word of God and hear what it has to say and then put it into practice to become obedient to what Christ speaks to us in His Word and in faithful obedience we also, like the shepherds, encounter the Savior and the Lord in different ways. And their faithful obedience led them into this place of wonderful encounter with the Christ child. So that they were changed. And they couldn't help but tell others of what had happened. This is indeed good news. And so verse 17, when they had seen him... They spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to him. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The shepherds welcomed. The shepherds obedience, their encounter of Jesus, and then their joy-filled praise and sharing of this good news with those around. There was a, a joyfulness, a celebration. Now, remember the shepherd's journey began in fear, but that journey went from fear to obedience to encounter and worship and then to joy, welcomed, obedient, encounter with Christ, celebration, and joy. What was summed up in verse 10 of this chapter turns out to be true. Let me read verse 10 to you again. The angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. They had made a journey in obedience and traded great fear for great joy. Welcomed, obedient, joy. Sometimes we want to just get from the welcome to the joy. But the journey of obedience is what leads us into the deepest joy of the Lord. Not just superficial but the deep joy of the Lord. Ten years ago yesterday, I went under the surgeon's knife for eight hours to cut out cancer tumors in my bowel and a whole load of lymph nodes. And then ten years ago today, I was rushed from ICU back into uh, get a scan because of the deterioration in my well-being. These 10-year anniversaries for those who have journeyed this journey are important. 
And I can remember the journey from ICU down to this scan as I passed families sitting on chairs, not quite conscious, but enough to recognize them and kind of hold out a hand to them. And in those times where there was a lot of uncertainty around our family, there were some words that God spoke to us over and over and over again that we had to obey in ways that meant we would have fresh encounters with God that would strengthen us and somehow bring joy in the midst of what were unbelievable, unexpected, dark circumstances. And as I look back now, and I mean this as a testimony, not as a brag, it was our obedience to it that led us into those deeper encounters that brought the joy of the Lord that strengthened us. We became familiar with what we and many others called the shadow of cancer. And it can come over you anytime, even after you're out of the surgery and through the chemo and out the other side when you have a pain in the place or the places that you used to have. And that shadow of cancer can begin to hold you. But there were some scriptures that God gave us that we felt we had to respond to and obey. That well, we would have to live in some ways with that reality of the shadow of cancer. We did not have to be obedient to the shadow of cancer, but rather we needed to be obedient to sit in the shadow of God's wing. That's altogether a different thing. And so I want to read to you the scriptures that came alight for us from Psalm 63. And if it's okay, I'm going to read most of the psalm. And if it helps for you to close your eyes and, and picture this, that, that is fine. But this journey towards joy also must be the journey of obedience. It says this, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched, weary land where there is no water. That's the shadow. Whatever your shadow is may be different from what mine was. But I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. And because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. And I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. And I will be fully satisfied. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. And then comes another shadow. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. We choose to sing 
in the shadow of his wings. Even when we feel the shadow of whatever is happening in our life. And thanks be to God that sometimes there is that spontaneous joy and celebration that just comes even in the midst of the shadow. But sometimes it's a journey. And the journey is the journey of obedience. Whatever shadow we face, that our response of obedience is to sing in the shadow of his wing. And as we do, then we too begin to encounter this hope-filled joy and celebration. What does this mean for us as a people of God? Well, perhaps for some of us in those shadow places, this is just a reminder of the light of God and the shadow of His wing into which He welcomes you. but also means for us as a church that in the midst of what sometimes feels like a pandemic of pandemics in our world, that's the question, how will we as God's church bring a sense of hopeful obedience and joy in the Lord amidst those kinds of shadows? How will we walk with people with hopeful joy in a life of obedience the church of welcome the church of obedience the church of joy and celebration I'm going to invite the worship team or Isla or whoever's going to sing as we move into communion this is not just a word for us individually although it is you're welcomed in Christ and it's not just about a word of encouragement about being an obedient people of God. And this journey of obedience into joy. But it's about who we are as the people of God with each other and with the world around us. Let's be known for our welcome. Let's be known for our obedience. And let's be known for our joyful celebration. As we move into this time of communion, I see this represented in a scripture that talks about Jesus' journey to the cross from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. There it is there. Obedience to joy. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Christ has demonstrated this same journey. Welcome, obedience, joy. It shaped the people of God all the way through Scripture. 
And as we celebrate this meal of his broken body and shed blood, it is a journey of welcome, obedience that leads to joy.